Rising Giants Network. And when they start bombing us, t- to be honest, I I, I cannot uh, describe what what. Uh, still, I remember that uh, light. It's coming from everywhere. I remember that. Uh, that night, maybe the last hundred kilometers from crossing the border, I continue crying because I felt that I will never come back to Iraq again. This is my home and uh, let's go. And we lived for 15 years, the most beautiful years in my life. No, I didn't choose New Zealand, sorry. New Zealand chose me. This is the, the, the country we have to live. We have to live our life there. We have to end our life there. What I can say is that it is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. I'm Ashley Stewart, and from the Rising Giants Network, this is Our Darkest Day, examining the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terror attacks. I've spent the last two years speaking with some of the people most affected by this horrific crime. And in this podcast, I have the privilege of introducing you to them. This is the story of that day and the aftermath told in their words. This podcast isn't for sensitive ears or for children. If it's starting to feel like too much, just switch it off. In the last episode... Iraqi calligraphist Jana Azat learned her 35-year-old son Hussein was killed running towards the shooter in Al Noor Mosque. Jordanian barber Wasim Al Sati's four-year-old daughter, who was shot three times, returned to Christchurch and met the man who saved her life. Iraqi engineer Adib Sami spent three days in a coma, recovering from two gunshot wounds. In this episode, we zoom out a bit to learn more about how Jana and Adib came to New Zealand in the first place. Episode 3, The Long Journey Home Christchurch isn't necessarily the first choice of new home for many immigrants. It's not exactly London, Paris or New York. Many choose Christchurch for its quietness and its scenery and because they think that New Zealand is one of the safest countries in the world. For a lot of them, the journey in search of a normal, peaceful life is hard and long. Wasim Al-Sati arrived in 2014 from Jordan and was homeless for his first few weeks in the country as he desperately looked for a job. He slept in his car for six months until he was offered work as a barber and saved up enough money to bring his wife and children over. And I want my children to have a, to have a voice. I want them to do whatever they want. I want them to be whatever they want. And I want to support them as well. Um, I, I didn't choose as much as, as what I want to be when I was young for me to grow up. So I didn't want that to happen to them. And I have done my math. And New Zealand, one of the good countries for education and, and the health system. And, and, and the people are friendly. It was pretty much the safest place you can be. Many others, like vascular surgeon Adib Kanafa, came from the oil-rich countries of the Arabian Gulf. Adib is Lebanese, but he was born in Kuwait, and then lived and trained in London before moving to New Zealand 
when a job in his field opened up. Abdi Ibrahim's family were refugees from Somalia, fleeing the country's bloody civil war. He arrived when he was about three years old, but he doesn't remember any of it. For this episode, we're going to focus on the two stories of Adib Sami and Jana Izzat. That's because Adib and Jana's lives follow a very similar trajectory through Iraq, the United Arab Emirates, and finally, New Zealand. But they never met until they arrived in Christchurch. Their stories are not the most harrowing or the most tragic, but they are typical for many. The year was 1965. Iraq was booming. There'd been a sharp increase in petrol prices recently, which was Iraq's main export, so prosperity and growth were everywhere. This was the country's heyday. The streets were wide and the villas grand. That was the year Jana Izzat was born near the ancient city of Nineveh. It's on the outskirts of Mosul, on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. It's very historical area. Yeah, very peaceful, very, very peaceful. A very calm city, everybody knows everyone, neighbours. Jana remembers Mosul in the 70s as a cosmopolitan city, prosperous, safe and diverse, a melting pot of Arabs, Kurds, Christians and Jews. Jana's father had gone to America on an agriculture scholarship. He came back and took up a managerial role in a sugar factory. Her mother was a mathematics teacher. Mosul also had a thriving industrial sector, factories for processing wool and tanning leather, as well as textile, sugar and food processing factories, like the one her dad worked in, flourished within the city during the 70s and 80s. The Azat family, two parents and five daughters, led a privileged life. Jana and her older sister Farah started learning Arabic calligraphy. They got really good. Early stages, I started with uh, doing uh, calligraphy because my father noticed that I have the talent of doing uh, calligraphy and ornaments. So let's say I didn't start playing like a child rather than starting to do the artwork. So he noticed that we have the uh, talent to know. So he tried from the beginning, even before I uh, started to learn uh, ABC. Yeah, it's just like for me, it's like copy and paste rather than text. I have this uh, talent. I can copy any image and paste it with my hands. Like it's it's, it's built in my memory and then I can um, draw it. So let's say in the beginning, I draw the calligraphy rather than uh, uh, writing it as uh, text. As Jana's talent grew, her father began driving his daughters from Nineveh to Istanbul every summer to learn from a famous calligraphist. That's when Jana's star really ascended. I'm in the higher stage of learning calligraphy with a very well-known uh, calligraphist. His name is Hamid Al-Amadi. And uh, in the year in um, 1975, when I was 10 years old, me and my um, sister, we got the certificate since that age. So it was like a blow in the media and newspaper, the youngest calligraphist in the world having uh, certified. So it means that I can give this, I can teach 
400 kilometres south of Nineveh, Iraq's capital, Baghdad, was also flourishing. This was where Adib Sami was born, the same year as Jana in 1965. He was raised in a middle-class district of the sprawling suburb of al Qadisiyah. It was a melting pot of cultures and religions too. Christians, Sunni and Shia Muslims, all living alongside each other. One of Adib's best friends was Christian, so the three of them used to trundle along to church on Sundays to ogle the beautiful women in the congregation. The favour was returned sometimes when they allowed the Christian friend to come along to the mosque with the other two for prayer. It was a time when there was tolerance between religions. Before Saddam Hussein came to power and forced Christians from their homes in the 1990s. Adib grew up in a wealthy family of mostly men, with two older and one younger brother. The Sami family home was a social hub, open to visitors at all hours of the day, something which wasn't possible in family homes with daughters. My father is working in Ministry of uh, uh, Work Department, which is also related to civil engineering. But uh, he was uh, uh, an admin uh, staff, um, and my mother is a teacher. So they are in, you know, in Iraq and during 70s and the 80s, uh, uh, if you are a, a government uh, employee, you can live uh, your life. Uh, I, I remember uh, during the summer, they always travel to 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 spend the summer break in any countries in the neighbors like Egypt. My 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 father he like Egypt, so every year he's spending a month or forty five days in Egypt. Uh, but my uh, my mother she always travel with her friends to Europe to so she she to to Lebanon to Turkey so so all. Uh, so so our our uh, our style is a, a normal a normal family new infrastructure was being built in iraq modern sewage and water pipes and big new highways in anticipation of the country's bright new future it was this infrastructure boom and a bit of his father's influence that led adib to take on a career in engineering this was a bit of a change of course up until then, Adiba dreamed of being a football star. In Iraq, uh, we, two things we are focusing. Education and sport. So for me, I like football too much. But my focus was with football. Uh, I wanted to be a you know professional, but unfortunately, you know, in Iraq uh, we have to follow our uh, our family wish, and it's old-fashioned, you know, not like uh, in in our days now. So I started uh, studying uh, engineering. My father wanted me to go medical because my two brothers were engineers. Uh, one electrical and one mechanical. So my my father was uh, pushing me to to be to go to health science to be a, a doctor. And uh, but I I like uh, civil engineering. So what I did in in Iraq when you uh, when you when you go to university they will give you a. a, a request where you where, where you want to join. 
So you start taking, but I take the civil engineering before uh, before the medical uh, university. And when my father uh, discovered that I did that, he said, you did something wrong. <laughs> and uh, I, for, I remember four months he didn't speak with me. He refused. He refused. But then at the end, he I told him I, I like uh, I like engineering, and I hate, you know, from uh, the blood uh, uh, and how the doctor used this. In the 1980s, war had broken out between Iraq and Iran. Adib was still in Baghdad. He didn't want to leave. Till 90, uh, the concept of leaving the country, it was not there. So, so, so Iraqi people, uh, because the level of... Uh, of uh, uh, life there is perfect. So nobody will leave Iraq. We all stayed in Iraq. We want to, to make the families there. But all that changed in the 90s. Uh, we started uh, to, to, to live only day life, no night life. Every, uh, no, nobody can move at night. From uh, getting everything easy to search for even uh, uh, one one kilogram of meat or or a chicken or so so it was a, a, a tough eight years. It it turned everything upside down. So so uh, after a after eighty eight. You know, the war uh, stopped in 88, 8 August 88. I still remember that day. As everything started kicking off in Iraq, Jana was betrothed to Hazem al-Amari. She was 17. It was an arranged marriage. They were related, and they met on the day of their wedding, which was pretty common. But Jana was happy with the arrangement. They'd both checked each other out in photos and approved. She believed it was safer to marry someone related to you, with the same beliefs, than to go off with a stranger. But it also required her to leave her beloved Mosul. Hazem was living in Abu Dhabi and working as an oil engineer for ADCO, an earlier iteration of ADNOC, which is now one of the world's largest producers of oil. And so Jana moved too. But she was excited for her new life. Back then, Abu Dhabi wasn't the gleaming metropolis it is today. It was a small city of about 230,000 people, a smattering of buildings on the Arabian coast, hemmed in by desert in every direction. Jana continued her calligraphy and made friends in the compound she lived in with Hazim. She had everything she ever wanted. My husband were, and currently he is very good husband, so I didn't feel that uh, I'm alone or I'm um, uh, in a strange uh, country. And Abu Dhabi and the whole Emirates, uh, it's um, very easy to live. And it's, uh, it was a good uh, lifestyle, like our lifestyle in Mosul. So it, that's why I didn't uh, uh, feel uh, uh, bad or Oh, homesick. No, I didn't. So once I get, uh, I have my children, I started to feel I have a family. This is my home. And uh, let's go. And we lived for 15 years, the most beautiful years in my life. She gave birth to Hussein when she was 21 and Aya two years later. Her calligraphy made her famous. 
she was making pieces for UAE royalty, including the country's founding father himself, Sheikh Zayed al-Nahyan. Her pieces were turned into posters and stickers for cars. Uh, let's say my uh, period of time, I mean the 15 years that I lived in Abu Dhabi, it was my most beautiful years I lived in. It started new life, a good husband, nice children. A few years later, in 1986, Adib was doing his master's in engineering in Baghdad when he met his future wife, Sana. He had a relative living in her neighbourhood. She was struggling, he laughs, and wasn't working at the time. So she asked him to help her out. But he did a bit more than that. A picture of them on their wedding day shows a beautiful young Sana seated in front of a beaming Adib, wearing a lace wedding gown with a voluminous skirt, her hair uncovered and pinned in an elegant updo. Their wide smiles became a hallmark of their relationship. Soon after, they had their first child, Heba. Their second child, Abdullah, came two years later. The twins would soon follow. Then the Gulf War started. It was 1990. Iraq had just invaded Kuwait in a dispute over oil prices and production. The US responded by leading a 35-nation strong campaign to expel Iraq from Kuwait. The world turned against Iraq. That year, on New Year's Eve, Adib met a reporter from CNN, who essentially prophesied the coming years. Adib was partying in a hotel to celebrate a friend's marriage when the reporter turned to them and asked if they were crazy and that the US was going to bomb the country And here they were partying as if nothing was happening. They all waved him off. That wouldn't happen here, they told each other. Adib still remembers the night the bombing started, just a few weeks later. It started in in 2.30, something like this, around 2 2 a.m. And when they start bombing us, to be honest, I I cannot... uh, describe what what uh, still i remember that uh, light it's coming from everywhere the bomb uh, you know uh, i said this is the uh, this is the end we, i will never uh, live live uh, to tomorrow morning because the sound of bombs that uh, the the quantities of of i don't know the explosion they they pumped iraq in or baghdad in that night even my, I, I told you before. Even my uh, 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 my wife, when she prepared, you know, the milk for uh, uh, Abdullah. Abdullah that day, he was uh, one year, so he's he's uh, drinking milk. She she didn't open the light because the light of bomb is enough for doing anything, everything. So. Uh, they start bombing us till five o'clock, maybe maybe two 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 three hours, and I said we were lucky that uh, we survived. And yet he still wanted to stay. He thought the war would be fought without bringing civilians into it. After all, Iraqis had seen many wars. Adib reasoned, Baghdad was their home. That was until about a month later when on February 13th, 1991, 
US Air Forces bombed an air raid shelter that killed 408 civilians. Life started to turn upside down. Baghdad was no longer safe. Poverty skyrocketed. Looting and robberies became big problems. As the years went by, the family lost everything. Uh, I start looking for a passport from 1991 till 1996 because uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, whomever you have a master's degree or or a PhD, uh, it's, uh, he will not allow you to get a passport to leave the country. That's the, the big uh, challenge when you apply for uh, a passport. But uh, you know, as, uh, as the two wars uh, already ended, so the corruption started. Before, we don't have any corruption in Iraq. During the 80s, uh, if you ask anyone, uh, he will tell you that Iraq is free from corruption. But unfortunately, once the economy, you know, destroyed and the, the, the people will be in, in need, so the corruption will start. It's uh, it's normal. Now, if you see any any poor countries, you will see the corruption is there. So uh, I I started to look after somebody to 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 arrange to me a passport. And uh, if you imagine who who helped me, uh, I think I will tell you his name. He's the minister of education <laughs> who who helped me to get the the passport to to go out of the country. The family decided to move to the UAE as it was one of the only countries accepting Iraqis at the time. They escaped through the land border to Jordan. Because we are under a, 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 a high pressure from the government. If anyone catch them that they plan to leave Iraq, they will uh, send him to prison. It's not a joke. So I said, Sana, let us plan everything. Then I will tell my my family before 48 hours. And you will tell your family also like this. Uh, I remember that night my father, he didn't accept what I am talking. And he said, no way I will allow to you. I told him, yes, okay, I will uh, discuss later. But I, you know... Decided, so it's no, 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 any negotiation. <laughs> I will not accept any negotiation. I was old enough. It's uh, I'm talking. I'm um, I, I was 29 years old. So and I have family. I have to take care of my family. So I decided to leave Iraq to United Arab Emirates. Adib found the UAE to be as Jana did, safe, calm, and spacious. But Alain was different to Abu Dhabi. It was almost like the plane had taken him back in time, rather than down and across the Arabian Gulf. They created a new life for their family. But for Iraqis, the war didn't stay within their homeland. It followed them abroad. In the early 90s in the UAE, Jana noticed attitudes towards her family changing. 
Iraq had been condemned by the UN, as well as by most of the Gulf countries, over its invasion of Kuwait, and anti-Iraqi sentiments lingered. Aya and Hussein were ostracised at school. Jana still remembers it. That there was a lot of discrimination and Hussein had, he would be put in detention and get some weird as punishment. Yeah, they they draw a very hot, a circle on the blackboard and it's a wee bit higher than Hussein's height and he has to put his nose uh, to face uh, the circle, his nails, and he has to, um, like, wearing heel. Yeah. Tipito, yeah. yeah. And will stay long, long time. till. And I'm waiting outside. This is every day. And waiting outside till he, they finish and let, them, uh, let him out. And he never told me because uh, he was afraid that the detention will be doubled the next day. But uh, I don't know how did I know. I don't know how did I know. And then one of the day I entered. Why everybody is out but not my son? Then I entered his classroom and I saw uh, Hussein and he was afraid to hug me or to come to me. He said, please wait, wait. My detention time is not uh, is not uh, completed. Please go out, go out. So at that stage, I just burst. Yeah, and said, that's it. That's it. Jana enrolled them in a different school. It was better, but the general unease remained. And in a country without long-term visas, Hazem realised he needed to look elsewhere for his family's future. He tried everywhere, but nobody would take an Iraqi family. He knew things were dire when an application for immigration to Papua New Guinea was rejected. He'd already exhausted most of his options by the time he turned to New Zealand. He told me about it over Iftar. New Zealand chose me. <laughs> How did that yeah. happen? <laughs> because, you know, I applied for Canada maybe, I don't know, 10 times. And it was very difficult. And Australia also, it was, uh, I applied several times. Mm. And in the meantime, I just, if there is any job anywhere in the world, I would just apply. And I recall that I, because this is a milestone. Sadly, I lost this document, which yeah. tells me, sorry, we are in, from uh, a power in New Guinea, 1985 or 86. Oh. I, uh, as a patrolman, I know that there were uh, cannabis, cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they eat people, they eat people. Wow, the cannibals. I know that they are there, but I said, <laughs> yeah, I said sure. what the hell? Even this place rejects me. <laughs> <laughs> Even the cannibals. It's not uh, New Zealand specifically. Uh, my uh, husband applied to Canada, USA, uh, New Zealand, and Australia. All of them were rejected, but uh, New Zealand accepted on the point system. So my husband passed the point system very successfully. And that's it. I mean, New Zealand chose us. In 1993... Jana and Hazem travelled to New Zealand to start the immigration process. The plan was that Jana would move to New Zealand to get residency for her and the kids, and Hazem would stay in Abu Dhabi for a few years to support them. Jana was bereft. The buildings in New Zealand were old, the cars were rusty, and the technology was non-existent. There were sheep everywhere. Jana cried a lot over the move. She asked her husband how they would ever live in this country. They had little money, 
so outings were mostly whatever could be done for free. While they were waiting to move to Christchurch, one of their enduring memories was feeding the pigeons on Queen Street in Auckland, armed with crumbs from the bottom of bread barrels from the nearby bakery. It's totally different, completely different than uh, our culture or our or what I was used to. Um, and uh, yeah, we have nothing to do, uh, just waiting for our um, permanent uh, residence visa to be uh, printed on our Iraqi passport. Uh, then because we uh, decided to move to Christchurch. So we were just like... Um, transit time in Auckland about a week. So we have nothing to do rather than going to Queen's uh, Street and feeding the pigeons. And it was uh, not like now, but it was, to be honest, it was boring. Uh, it was cold. Uh, we're not used to that. All of a sudden, everything is changed. And I started crying. And I told my husband, when you come back to Abu Dhabi, I need... Um, not one-way ticket. The years passed. Adib worked his way up to become director at a global engineering firm. He and Sana loved Alain. But once Heba reached high school, Adib wanted more for her, a better education and a more stable future. He came to a similar conclusion that Hazem had, that there wasn't a long-term future for them in the UAE. So we were looking to to send our children to study in one of the countries, like, to be honest, Canada. So we applied for, for Canada to, to make a, a, a skilled immigrant there. So we did all the paperwork and we give it to a lawyer uh, to start relocating to Canada for uh, uh, only the sake of children uh, education so we were looking where to where to uh, uh, educate or to to uh, make a, a space or make a, a seat for uh, our children in universities uh, unfortunately after one year of waiting the lawyer, he came to us and he said, unfortunately, we lost your, your papers. <laughs> I remember Sana, she, she, she wanted to, you know, <laughs> she starts screaming on the lawyer and I told her, this is uh, good, you cannot, you cannot say anything. So what he said, uh, he said, uh, I will apply to you a nice country called New Zealand and uh, uh, I will not charge you anything. Adib got straight on the internet to research universities and found New Zealand institutions ranked quite highly. He sent Heber as an international student to the University of Canterbury in Christchurch and Abdullah soon after. He visited for the first time himself for a month in 2008 and absolutely loved it. Uh, to be honest, I liked Christchurch because exactly like Baghdad, like a line. It's a nice, quiet city. Uh, 
The month I spend it there, I spend it, you know, mostly uh, studying the, the, the people, the culture, everything, all of them friendly whenever you walk. Uh, you will never... Uh, I, 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 I surprised that everyone... Uh, uh, know me before <laughs> because everyone is saying good morning good morning i told him what's this why the people are saying good morning i don't know them <laughs> so they they were very friendly uh, during uh, 2009 i i said sana this is the 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 country we have to live we have to live our life there we have to end our life there he decided to split his time between Christchurch and Alain for the next few years, until he was ready to move to New Zealand full-time. His children loved New Zealand. They never wanted to return to the Middle East. When he was in town, Adib went to Al Noor Mosque and tried to get his children to go. Ali tried to go on and off. So did Abdullah. It's why, when Adib saw Ali in the mosque on March 15th, he simply wasn't expecting it. Al Noor was where Adib met Jana and Hazim. Adib's son Ali and Jana's son Hussein became friends. Adib describes it as a community centre. It was a place to see friends and catch up while also observing his faith. Both families struggled with feeling misplaced from time to time. But in the past few years, Jana had grown to love Christchurch. It reminded her of Mosul. But until they got permanent residency, the family was still shuttling back and forward to Abu Dhabi to see Hazim, and it was tough. So after six months, uh, to not lose my uh, our residency in Abu Dhabi, so we started every six months, the children and I, every six months going to Abu Dhabi to not lose our residency. And then um, it was out of our budget, three of us, twice a year. It was out of our budget until we got the citizenship in uh, New Zealand, we became uh, Kiwi. The children were, on the whole, okay. Aya says they weren't taunted for being foreign, but for sillier things, like the backpack she took to school. In the UAE, they'd used trundler bags with wheels because of how many books they had to carry. In New Zealand, when you turn up to school with a backpack on wheels, children laugh and ask if you're taking your books for a walk. Jana made sure her children kept in touch with their roots. They observed Ramadan and learned Arabic from Majid magazine, a weekly comic book produced in the UAE, which arrived every week to their letterbox in Christchurch. When Aya was older, she upgraded to Zahrat al-Khalij, the Arabic version of Women's Weekly. She still has a huge stack of them in her room. For me, the Muslim faith doesn't matter if I practice it at the mosque or at home. For me, it's the same, at home. Uh, I'm the kind of not showing my, because it's a belief it's between uh, me and God. It's not to show people if I'm Muslim or other um, religion. So it, it wasn't a matter. But what I did, I introduced to Hussein and Aya the Anur, uh, Anur um, mosque. mosque. Uh, so not every Friday, but just to be familiar with the mosque, starting uh, to pray and to be familiar with the, with the mosque. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember we used to go quite frequently to Friday prayers. Yeah. And then we stopped on September 11th. Uh, yeah, we stopped in September 11th. 
to avoid any races, to avoid any for our security and uh, uh, for our safety. Chana doesn't cover her hair. She has a light complexion, which she thinks helped her blend in easier. She was never ostracized in New Zealand, but she did notice things shift slightly after the Twin Tower attacks on September 11, 2001, which is why what happened on March 15th was even harder to come to terms with. And uh, believe me, Ashley, I swear to God, six months before Hussein's death, I was telling him every day, every day, Hussein's, don't go to the mosque. Please pray at home. He said to me, oh, it's very difficult to talk about Hussein in the past tense. Anyhow, he said, Mama, I'm 35 years old and I am a grown uh, man. Uh, don't worry, I will be okay. I will be okay. And I had this feeling that something wrong is going to happen with Hussein. Something wrong. And it happened. In the next episode of Our Darkest Day, we'll explore the concept of white supremacy in more detail, as well as hearing from a terrorism expert about radicalization in an interconnected world. This kind of idea that you have to fight to preserve um, white identity in European culture before it disappears, before it gets eroded through immigration and multiculturalism and pluralism and diversity. What started to happen, particularly post 2016 or so with the rise of Trump and far-right politics uh, in Europe was um, a lot of these fringe groups started to feel uh, like they had a representative in the mainstream. Our Darkest Day is a Rising Giants network production. It was written by myself, Ashley Stewart. It was produced by Bashar Najjar and Basil Anabtawi, with script and story consultation by Popsock Media in New Zealand. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Spotify, Angami, or wherever you get your podcasts. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film... Or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. 